Hello and happy Wednesday to you. This is Romans 9 and that's where we're going to get started. You need to know that after Paul did this amazing reveal in Romans 1 through 8, which is just an exciting rolling out of things that boggle our minds, that he's now going to continue to boggle our minds. I, I can understand why they put the dot here and made this a different chapter. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are going to be a case study of what Paul said in Romans 1 through 8. So he set up the theology. He's told us the good news, the great news, the outstanding news, the mind-blowing news. Now, he's going to take a case study because people are like this. People are very happy that God's going to save them, but they're also a bit disappointed that God's going to save somebody else that perhaps they don't really agree with. So, Romans 9, Paul says, and it's, this is an unusually um, frank and hard statement. Not hard as in being mean, but hard to get our heads around. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're listening. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. He has set this up pretty well, but did you notice what he said there? He said, just basically swearing an oath, saying, I'm not lying, and this is attested by Christ in the Spirit. I would lose my soul if it would save Israel. Now think about this. I can remember the first time it hit me uh, looking at this. I think I was around 10 years old because to me at that time, hell was something which is an eternal torture pit that quadrillions of years in the future, you would still be in as much pain as you were day one. And if you've not listened to the Monday morning messages, please do. There's a six part series on hell that I hope will change your perspective dramatically. Regardless, even if hell is just complete annihilation, Paul is here saying, I would, I would volunteer for that. I would give up the eternal glory of God and living in heaven as a joint heir of Christ, I'd give that all up and I would become nothing. My life would be snuffed out. There'd be no memory if that would save Israel. Now that's, that's a hard ask. Now, maybe not as hard uh, if you don't believe that hell is an eternal torture pit, and I don't. But regardless, you're giving up heaven. You're giving up that whole... By the way, you don't get to make that bargain. So it's not as if you, you're really... Paul can do this. It's just his way of saying, this is how much I love my people. And there's a little problematic thing, isn't it? Um, 
it, we, we tend to right now try to act as if we don't have people, but we do have people. It might not be a race, but as he refers to Israel as a race. And again, I'm, we're not talking about a genetically different group of people. It's a cultural different people, a religious different people. But he had them. You know, I have a special affection in my, my heart for Scotland and the people there, Ireland and the people there. I have a greater affection for my wife and the family we've created here. Those are my people. Uh, I can also say that our, our safe harbor is, is my people. And all of those that are listening and friends and that have you know, contributed or sent encouraging emails or sent videos we can use during worship, these are my people. But they are red and yellow, black and white. You know, they are from uh, different places and in fact, one of these days we'll have to do a series of Monday morning messages on the concept of race. But when we come to genetics, very often somebody from Kenya is a closer match to someone from Scotland, let's say, than they are to somebody in Uganda. We can never assume that the amount of melanin in your skin means that you belong to all this group of people with varying melanin in their skin. Yeah, and so we get into trouble no matter how we try to phrase, these are my people. I don't, I, I don't say white people are my people because they're just way too diverse. And many of them, they're, they're not my people. And there are many times I've been someplace, looked around and gone, I don't think I belong here. These are not my people. You have people. Jesus had Peter, James, and John, and then a larger group of apostles, and then a larger group beyond that but he had people. It's kind of nice to know who your people are, who you can count on, your friends. And again, that can be of all different colors and stripes because that's not, that's not the separating factor here. The separating factor is, are you able to work and live with them and respect them and they respect you? Then these are your people. Well, Paul was proud that he came from Israel and he's proud that he was a Jew. And he says, they're the ones, look, look at how they were born on second base here. They are the ones that were adopted to sonship. They are the, the ones that have the divine glory. They, they have the temple, the covenants. From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. This is really special. What, what's he doing here? Well, after he set up the amazing good news, the first eight chapters, now we're doing the case study. Gentiles were not impressed with those of Israel. And it is very fair to say that attitude was returned. The Israelites were not, not loving the Gentiles. And the idea that God's gonna love both groups was causing, well, actually they just couldn't buy it. They believed that God loved their group best. Does this sound familiar? that God loved the way they did things and that God loved the way their culture and worship was and that the Israelites had blown it. And that we get I, early, early on, uh, Eusebius, Origen, great church leaders said basically, well, Israel had all this stuff, but they blew it. And from there comes the whole system of pogroms and death camps and you know, banishing Jews from your kingdom and, and the way they were treated uh, everywhere, everywhere. 
is just uh, horrific. And it was given a religious justification. Had we been paying attention to Romans 9, 10, 11, that could not have happened. He's going to make sure they understand, no, no, no. God has not given up on Israel at all. Pay attention. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. We'll get back to that. Nor are the descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offering will be reckoned. It is, um, uh, Paul, Paul is dealing with another issue here. And that is Abraham had two sons, one through Hagar, one through Sarah. The one through Sarah was the child of promise, Isaac. And from him come the Jews. The one from Hagar was the one Abraham and Sarah decided to do to help God solve his prophecy problem with the committee. And there's the birth of Ishmael. Now God loved Hagar and Ishmael and made that very, very, very plain. And through Ishmael are traced through scripture traditionally, the Arabs. So the Jews and Arabs are cousins, brothers, all the way back to Abraham. And Paul here is saying, all right, we're, we're not even talking about children of Abraham. We're talking about children of Isaac. We're narrowing it down. Well, what about those not all, what was that phrase again? Kind of weird. It's not, it's for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Those who know Hebrew uh, know the wordplay being done here. What does Israel mean? Israel means those who wrestle or he who wrestles with God. And he said, Israel's not the only wrestlers with God. That's a fantastic statement. It's just a shame that translation uh, means that we don't, we don't really get it. We need to get it. Um, sorry, I'm moving around here trying to cross my legs and the chair's in the way. That's all you needed to know. You know, background stuff, you know, the man behind the curtain. On the contrary, it's Isaac. Now, in other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Now, what, 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 what? He's talking to the Israelites here and he's saying, listen, it isn't children of Abraham. It's the children of the promise. Because Ishmael was not a child of the promise. Isaac was. And they'd all look at each other and go, well, yeah, that's true. That makes sense. Because if we say children of Abraham, then that includes all the Arabic peoples. And the Jews were not ready to do that anytime soon. And by the way, that was also, that attitude was also returned in full. So they're saying, well, that's right, that's right. It's not merely genetic Abraham. It has to be child of the promise. Okay, good. Hold that thought, as Paul might say. For this is how the promise was stated at that appointed time, I'll return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, and that election is a little difficult translation phrase. Um, so let's, God had made some decisions and he was gonna follow through on the decisions. Before they were born, 
Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's a really tough phrase, isn't it? Well, it comes out of Malachi chapter one. You really need to look at the context and what Malachi was trying to say. Paul brings it out here because he assumes his readers will know the story and will know it, know the book and will know it very well. We, we do ourselves an incredible disfavor by not knowing the Old Testament. You know, we don't need to elevate it and say every word there is historically and scientifically true and God dictated every single word and vowel. And we don't need to do that to read the book and understand these are the stories and these are the concepts and these are the ideas that formed these people over more than a millennia. And so they're important. They're going to be referring to these stories just as you and I might refer to uh, poems or we might refer to movies, we might re refer to television shows um, or plays by Shakespeare. We are, we are creatures of our culture and we refer back, we reflect back on these. And so that's what he's doing here, saying, listen, God had made a decision that Esau wasn't going to be his guy. He was going to work through Jacob. I'm not sure I can explain all the whys there, um, but I let me just run something past you. Esau was big, strong, and powerful. God chose the other one. The one that was smaller, weaker. Um, when Esau was out hunting, you know, his brother's basically in the kitchen with his mom. So uh, I'm just, um, that's, um, that's something to think about. Paul talks about he uses the weak ones to show his glory. I know he didn't, when he, he used me for our safe harbor and all the other work I've done in my life, it was never because I was the man for the job because I've never been the man for the job. It was never because I, I, I got that sin thing conquered because not even close. It wasn't because I got humility down because no, don't have that either. It is proof of the existence of God that great good has come out of my work because that's not in me. And this is no false humility. This is reality. We need to be real with each other and we are all a mess and we need a savior. But if God chose the champions, then those of us who are not champions would be lesser and it wouldn't be so obvious that God was at work. God chose the weak one here. So he goes, what shall I say then? Is God unjust for choosing Jacob over Esau? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Now the, the inverse here was not stated, nor is it to be thought of as true. And that is, I'm just going to hate who I want to hate regardless. No, by hating, he meant un he did not choose him. He shoved him over into a harder place, a more difficult place. And um, that's true. That's very true. He chose to go with someone else. And the hating there isn't that, you know, that we think of. It is more the pushing to the side. And Esau was pushed to the side. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. 
going to really stress. He's going to have compassion on who he's going to have compassion, mercy on whom he's going to have mercy. Please remember, we're doing a case study now of the all-consuming love and salvation and justification and glorification by God. And he's going to do that with people that you think need to be condemned. He's going to give them glory, even though you think they're wrong and they're awful. Get used to it because God's love is greater than our love and his judgment is not our judgment. And you can keep eating from that tree in the garden, the wrong one, but you're not God and you don't get to decide right or wrong. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. If therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, he hardens who he wants to harden. That also seems like, wait, wait. Um, so Pharaoh didn't have any choice in this. Oh, he did. He did. He could have behaved in a whole different way. But when he chose not to, God then gave up on him and hardened his heart. Let it, just let it go hard because he's not going to do this. He's not going to, um, he's not going to change Pharaoh's mind against Pharaoh's will. If Pharaoh wants to be hard about this, let him be hard and suffer the consequences. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He hardens who he wants to harden. He would never harden a person who wanted to hear God and seek God. We should know that for the first eight chapters. It's a shame that we don't read all of these things in context. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why do you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? I, um, I will never be in danger of being called up by the Olympic Committee to participate in any sport. And by the way, that was true when I was a young man at the height of whatever, did I have height? Whatever, uh, my best chance of physical ability. No, not at all. Was I ever jealous? Yeah, I was. Especially the men's gymnastics on the rings. I'd look at them holding themselves in those positions and all those muscles and go, well, why'd I get this? I listen to people who have that deep radio voice and then I hear mine. I'm going, why did I get this? So yeah, there, there are a lot of times that I've looked at God and said, if you wanted me to do more, you would have made me better. And God shows me that was foolish because he can take one loaf of bread and feed 5,000. He, he can do a little with a lot. It's rather like, do you remember when the prophet goes to find uh, a place to stay and there's a widow who has a son, she is poor and he wants a room in her house and he says, will you make me food? And she goes, I have just a little oil and a little flour and I'm gonna make one little cornbread thing here basically is what it's gonna be. <coughs> a fritter, I don't know. Gonna make it and then we're, my son and I are gonna eat that and then we're just gonna lay down and die because I got nothing. And so the prophet goes, no, 
go borrow all the pots your neighbors will let you borrow and bring them back here. And she does. And all of them are filled with oil. That's a lot more than she'll ever need for baking. It means she's got a business going there too. It completely reversed her circumstances. But the point is this, God did not fill any pot with oil that she did not bring. And there's the thing. We sometimes say, all right, we'll bring ourselves before God, but we keep a lot of it back because we don't really trust him. And he's only going to fill what you bring. Um, he's not going to put anything in your hands if your hands are clenched because you're afraid of losing what you have. Even to, Paul, uh, even to Moses, he goes, all right, what's in your hand? Good point. Good point. Open it up. Because a closed hand can receive nothing from God. So Paul here is saying, listen, you've got to be willing to be whatever lump of clay he made you and be used to his glory. From one lump to another, he can use you. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? All right, I'm reading fast. I'm aware of that. Um, I really wish I could go faster through these books, frankly. They're, but it wouldn't be fair if you're actually trying to learn. Now, if you're just putting in time on a Wednesday, I don't think any of you are. This is our smallest video of the, of the week. The Monday morning messages are big. Worship's pretty big. Uh, it's about, it's, it's in the thousands when you hit all of the different venues uh, and viewing options and podcasts. This one's the smallest. This one will run on YouTube between 300 and 500 consistently every week. So it's our smallest. So I know if you're listening, you are dedicated to this. And so thank you. Thank you. All right. What if God decides to show mercy to people who you think are bound for destruction? What is it to you? Their sin is against God. Now their sin may hurt you, put you in concentration camps or uh, deny you justice in the courts, but their sin's really against God. So what if God does with them what seems merciful? Or what if he decides to show how merciful he is by not destroying people? You know, there are times I've, I've thought, well, why did God let Genghis Khan live? You know, eventually he died, but not until he had made the largest empire the world's ever seen, built on blood, bones, and rape. Why didn't God kill him sooner? And the thing which is hard to deal with here sometimes is that God loved Genghis Khan as much as he loved me or you. And that delay, what we see as a delay, is giving everybody every possible chance to turn toward the one who can save them. Um, in Hosea, I'm one of my favorite books, and I wish I could to, you know, jump down the rabbit hole and just talk about Hosea for an hour, but I'm not going to. 
Uh, he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. He, Paul's just saying, listen, he's shown you all through the Old Testament. I'm going to take these people that are objects of wrath and bring them into the family with you. And they're going to share the inheritance with you. It's rather like talking to your kids about, we need you to start thinking good thoughts about having a baby sister. But it's an adoption. Baby sister won't look like you. Baby sister may not act like you or sound like you. What if we're not adopting a baby sister, but we're adopting a 17-year-old boy or girl from a different race and culture? And we're going to love them as much as we love you. How does that go over with the birth kids? I would say it varies somewhat, don't you think? Uh, according to the kid and according to the day, whatever day it is. Um, and in fact, Paul even reminds him, Isaiah said, if he had just judged us all fairly, we would have all ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's out of Isaiah, um, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, and Paul quotes it here in uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 29. And he goes, so, so what, what shall we say? Now, what do we have to, to say to this? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteous have obtained it, or they've just given it. A righteousness that is of by faith, but the people of Israel, it's not, it wasn't just faith, they pursued the law as a way of righteousness, but they've not attained the goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. All right, several things here. In these chapters, I don't read them and think, oh, those Jews. More, I think, oh, he's talking to me. Because many, many Christians now are in that mindset. Uh, we're not walking by faith. We're walking by certainty. And our certainty, we worship this way and that pleases God. And we do this and that pleases God. And we're going to do this and that pleases God. And those who do not agree with us on all these doctrinal or practice items uh, or the way they comport themselves in daily life, they're lost. Well, you then are getting your righteousness by works and not by faith. In fact, once you start that process, you start, you start manufacturing more and more and more rules that must be obeyed for God to love you. And that's what happened to the Jews. It's what happened in my old religious tribe, and I bet it's what's happened in yours. So what's the stumbling stone? As you've seen uh, the ruins of ancient civilizations, you've seen a large number of steps that go up to a temple or go up to a Senate building. What you might not have known is that in many of these areas, one step is different. And the reason is an invader running in, he's not from around there. He doesn't know about step 12 or step 20 or whatever it is. And so as they, that step is a different height. And so you trip over it, you stumble over it. It's either lower or higher, but it doesn't matter. You got a rhythm going all of a sudden, boom. They do that, by the way, um, there are towers and castles 
that uh, are in circles. And as you run up, you'll find a couple of things to be true. One is that when running up, you're always running clockwise. The reason is your shield's trapped over here. You can't get your sword around, but the people above, their sword fits just nicely, thank you very much. So it's for the defenders. But also pay attention as you go up those stairs. It's hard to tell now because many of them are worn down by the centuries, but one step at least will be a different height to trip them up, stumbling stop. And so something's gonna happen in the universe which is out of place. In the universe, we judge and we judge and we judge. And this is right and that is wrong. And this is right and this is wrong. And now a big trip step comes in. That's also what it's called, a trip step. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that, causes, that makes them fall. And one who believes in him will never be ashamed. What does it mean? Right in the middle of our judgment and our righteousness by works, Jesus shows up and says, whosoever will may come. Drink freely from the water of life. Doesn't matter, come on, come. We don't like that. Alexander Campbell, way back in the day, was asked why he didn't preach a sermon against the Mormons, a brand new church just invented by Joseph Smith. And his response was, it's too silly. You know, nobody ever, nobody will ever fall for that. Um, well, maybe we could use the sermon. But you know what? I often get sermon, uh, sermon requests, or used to, not so much now. That'll ask me, why don't you talk about, you know, the LGBTQ community? And, I, well, and I'll say, first of all, why would you target that sin if it's a sin? Well, we can talk about that. But why would you want me to target them and not you? Because you're the one listening, right? Now, by the way, we have many from that community who listen, who communicate with me, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled. God's gonna do what God's gonna do. The problem is when you come up with something saying, we need a sermon against, and it isn't your sin. Like Patrick, about, wanting too much stuff because i can tell you i don't want too much stuff and, and the fact is i love throwing stuff away but there's some stuff books and guitars come to mind that i could i could go get another one now so i don't walk up to ministers and say could you preach against patrick's greediness consumerism and lack of compassion and sharing his goods with the poor i don't do that once you preach against those, I'm just picking something at random, okay? Go preach against those Episcopalians. Preach against those Greek Catholic people. Preach against that political party people. No, no, no. The stumbling block is Jesus is going to accept more people than you can ever imagine. God's gonna love and save more people than you can ever imagine. And that's going to offend a great many people, but they're gonna to have to get over it because God's going to save them too. Chapter 10, we'll do this chapter 10 as much as we can and stay within our limit of time. I try to never go over 40 minutes, try to keep it around 30, but we've already done 30 here. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal's not based on knowledge. 
Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Again, it helps if you have context. He is not slamming an entire people. He's one of them. And he's saying, we were not based on knowledge. That went through me for a long time because I'm thinking, well, they knew the law. They knew the law forwards and backwards. What do you mean? The knowledge of the God they serve. They believed he was a narrow God, loving only a few. And that that few, you were born into the family. Uh, you were born, later on you'd be told, now you need to know who God is. But you were already gods because you were just born into this family, this community. He's going, no, you need to know that God has always wanted bigger. And in chapter 9, he quoted several books of the Old Testament to show, you know, he kept telling you, he's going to open this up to everybody. Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. The person that does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say into you, in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, who will descend from the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth, it's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. What faith? And by the way, Paul in this chapter is quoting from Leviticus three different times in, in um, Deuteronomy. He's quoting from Isaiah uh, three times and Zol, uh, uh, Zol, um, and Joel. And he uses a unique reading from the Septuagint when he quotes Isaiah 28. Paul was not above choosing different versions of the Bible to make his point. He's not being dishonest. It's just the way we do things. And so you need to know that. So what is it? What is it? Who's going to get Christ? Go fetch Christ because we've done well. We've did all, we did all the stuff. Now go get him to approve of us and take, no. Here's the faith. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now this is a problem because Jesus said, not everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember? It's in the Sermon on the Mount. You need to go check that. Paul says, quoting, by the way, Joel chapter 2, verse 32, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So what's context, context, context? These are all people who are seeking God. The people Jesus was talking about were people that call upon the name of the Lord, but use that as permission to do what they wanted to do. Building this, doing that good work, doing that, but it, it just let them do what they wanted to do anyway. They slapped the Lord on it and said, he blessed it. It's different. Plus, the word confession and the word profession, 
are the same word. These are not people who just call upon the name of the Lord. Christ is their profession. Now, that can mean a job where you're paid, but that's not what it's used for here. It means your entire way of life reveals Christ. We had an interesting series of exchanges on a recent vacation, and somebody asked, well, then, did you tell him about our church? And I went, no. Now, the person I talked to got that. They understood what I meant. I said, if they'd asked, I would have told them. All I needed to do on that, my duty was to treat them with love and dignity and plant some seeds that might grow and start cracking some of their worldview. And I trust God can find them then with the right person to take them the next step. I don't go around with my pocket full of brochures about Jesus and shove them onto people. No, I'm just going to try to profess Christ around them by the way I live, by the way I treat them. And if people notice that and they want to know more, then we'll lead into Christ. But that's, that's, so you don't go to church and profess Christ. The church professes Christ out, out there, around. That's why I work as hard as I can to stay up with you guys and email you and respond. Uh, during, already during this, um, my email is pulling up with numbers. That's all right. And I'll get to as many as I can, but you need to know that I only do that because this is good news. We've got to share this stuff. This is exciting. So talk. Talk about it. Let people know you're different. And when they ask you why, tell them. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. By the way, anybody who supports a good minister has done a good thing. And anybody who is a good minister has done a good thing. October was Pastor Appreciation Month for some reason. I think you should, as Paul would put it, always honor those who lead you and teach you and guard you and help you always that's just the reason is as moses was shown the battle can only be won if somebody else is helping your arms stay up you folk have done brilliantly and i'll never be able to say thank you enough so paul then says but not all the israelites accepted this good news it's a stumbling block they they had an exclusive club, and they didn't like the new members. Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing about the, hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Not all those rules. Not all the borders. It's about Christ. And the next few verses are all about that. And you can read those, verses 18 through 21 where God says, don't be jealous, do not reject. Israel, we are bringing them in. Notice something he is not saying. He's not saying we're kicking the Jews out because he doesn't. That's chapter 11, and that'll be next week. God bless you. I hope that your December is going wonderfully. If we can help you, reach out. Patrick at rsafeharbor.com. We'll do everything we can to help.